Hello everyone. A very warm welcome to all of you on this Tuesday evening. Today we're going to speak to Mr. Lloyd Mathias, a remarkable leader, but more importantly, a gem of a person. And he is here. Welcome to Bachelor Lloyd. Hey, thanks, Rishabh. Hey, Shashank. Shashank is also here. Hey, Shashank, good morning. Hey, Rishabh. Hi, hey, Lloyd. Hey, how are Hi. you? Very well. Great. All right. So, uh, Lloyd, as we speak, more and more students are joining us. And to all the listeners, a very good evening to one and all. Welcome to Startup Show. And I'm Rishabh Mehta tuning in from Team Backstage. So today, Lloyd is going to reflect on his journey, thereby showing us a path of becoming a successful business leader. He's a business strategist and an angel investor. He's a board member and advisor to companies in tech and consumer space. Earlier, he was Asia-Pacific marketing head of HP's PC business, president and CMO of Tata Docomo, country sales director for Motorola India and Southeast Asia, category director and EVP of PepsiCo India and South Asia. He was the chairman of MRUC, who the publishers of Indian Leadership Survey, chairman of Mobile Asia, and co-chairman of Mobility Development Group. Lloyd is regarded among India's best-known marketers and was named among the top 15 by International List magazine. He was chosen as Asia Market of the Year in 2016. Wow. Lloyd, so, so glad to have you on Backstage today. And I'm sure students are going to learn from you a lot today. Hey, thanks, Rishabh, and uh, pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, just happy to, you know, possibly share a few of my learnings. I'm not sure how much there are, but uh, something that could be relevant to a lot of people here. But would be happy if this remains more of a free-flowing conversation. Uh, so everyone is welcome to kind of stop, ask me questions, and just talk through. Uh, so after that, you know, uh, rather, uh, you know, grandiose introduction, I'm not sure I merit a lot of those points. Uh, just happy to have a quick little, give you a few pointers and some of the things. Uh, just want to start with where we are today. I think, uh, you know, the last... Uh, you know, 15 or 18 months have been a kind of uh, crazy moment in all our lives, right? In a sense, it's been like a universal timeout, right? Few of us would imagine, say, two years back of, you know, what this last 18 months would have been like, uh, right? All of us have kind of seen a sea change in almost every aspect of our life, right? In terms of, you know, how we behave in public, uh, going to the office, education, Things that we thought would be, you know, five or six years away or 10 years away have become a reality. Uh, who would have thought that, uh, you, know, you know, first graders would be doing online classes? Uh, who would have thought that remote medication is now a integral part of our life, right? Uh, you know, who would have assumed that cinema halls would be closed for more than one year? Uh, we wouldn't be going out to, you know, restaurants and such like. So it's been a universal timeout. And I think, in a sense, it's provided all of us the time to you know, reflect, rethink, reimagine, and reinvent ourselves, right? So it's been a moment. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of us have, you know, done things differently, partially by force and partially because we got uh, a lot of time to rethink our priorities and our interests, right? And I just want to reflect on this and, and, and share with you some of the things that, uh, you know, I work closely with a lot of the startup ecosystem and some of the things that some of these companies have done uh, in the last uh, you know, year or so. 
uh, and how this has paid off for some of them. So it's both like a personal thing and some of it is kind of professional. Uh, I think the first thing I want to start off with is saying that, you know, there's an old saying, uh, you know, among the fishermen community that uh, when there's a storm out at sea, that's the best time to mend your nets. So I think this entire period has given us a lot of time to kind of pause and reflect and also to recognize that there are some fundamental shifts in in the way the world is uh, is today and therefore some of this you know what is called today you know the buka world is now real right volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity is real and therefore some of the old paradigms that we all got used to today have become a little redundant right uh, let's say in the 80s and 90s people who started off their careers uh, they were assured of long tenures and you know there are people who possibly worked for one or two organizations for their entire working life uh, today that guarantee of employment is no longer existing right companies are looking at short time horizons uh, ceos look at life quarter to quarter right because they've got investors breathing down their throats right so the old period where companies you know hired somebody off campus and then you know made them grow and kind of people had fairly long tenures that has increasingly become uncertain right in a sense therefore we are all in some way now part of what is called the gig economy right people will take you on or hire you or you know get you going for the skills that you bring right not necessarily making a commitment for employment for a lifetime right so i think that is you know one reality which is this whole vuca world volatility uncertainty complexity and ambiguity is now part of life uh, the other part and you know you know for a lot of us based in india is that this possibly is a golden period for many and i'll say this out of two two reasons i think one is the fact that what has happened over the last maybe 5 or 6 years uh, is two fundamental shifts one is the you know ever since geo launched uh in the become let's say a market where the whole digital economy is uh, is booming and booming in a crazy way right most of you know that you know our data prices are cheaper than anywhere else in the world and today indians are major data guzzlers but more than that i think what this whole pricing shift has done it's it's boomed this whole internet economy right so companies that did not exist 10 years ago today are unicorns and some of them have gone public right you all know who these are and that has been driven on the back of about 550 million smartphone users and uh, the fact that internet has penetrated uh, or rather the, the broadband has kind of reached about 800 million people right so i think this is a kind of huge huge number and on the base of that a whole lot of businesses have now become viable right everything from e-commerce to you know to ride hailing apps like uber and ola to uh, you know to kind of uh, eating uh, to ordering food apps like zomato swiggy uh, you know the new age things like misho the paytms i think a lot of this has now become real and ever so often it takes one big moment uh, to change the way things happen right people say that the whole business of airline security became very severe in a sense after uh, the the attacks on the world trade center similarly in india digital payments and mobile wallets became very real after demonetization right till then a lot of people had kind of heard of things like paytm some of us had downloaded it but suddenly in that two months after demonetization everyone kind of got the real experience i think similarly 
COVID is now making some of these things very real, and therefore a lot of uh, you know post this uh, post the entire the last five years of this digital economy boom, a lot of new age companies have come and in a sense you know come out of nowhere and dominated the market. So if you look at the market capitalizations of uh, of uh, you know let's say companies like Airbnb and even local companies, they're far ahead of uh, you know you know typical traditional hospitality companies who have been around for you know, for four or five decades and more, right? Again, you know that, let's say, a company like Tesla's market cap is, you know, ahead of its uh, next four competitors uh, combined, right? So in a lot of cases, there's been a whole kind of, the business has has changed quite dramatically. Uh, the second, I think, reality and, you know, the good part of being in India is that the culture of entrepreneurship is growing, right? Again, if I would compare it, say, a couple of decades ago, People are very happy being hired off campuses and, you know, getting a job with a multinational and such like. Uh, today, some of the best uh, business schools and some of the best engineering colleges have roughly about a 30% people who are preferring, uh, you know, startups and some of them also being entrepreneurs. And that has got sparked off because of uh, a kind of much easier funding ecosystem, right? So uh, maybe it's about a couple of decades back until you had a wealthy a parent, uh, you couldn't really think of being an entrepreneur. But today, if you look at a lot of the startup ecosystem, you know, anybody with a good idea and with the passion to make it work, uh, you know, gets together with a couple of founders, you know, works out a kind of proof of concept, uh, you know, kind of gets a little bit of angel funding, family, friends, then works it through a kind of MVP. And voila, you have a company that's running. And, uh, you know, someone who's two or three years out of college is able to kind of build uh, a kind of successful startup, right? So I think two or three big parts. One is the digital economy in India is booming. Uh, second is what I would say an easier availability of funding. Uh, third is kind of a culture of entrepreneurship, right? Young people and a lot of you guys on this call will not really be satisfied with just taking a, a you know a job in a in a large multinational. People want to go out and do things and you know innovate and really really kind of uh, build that. And I think lastly, it's also overall an improving business environment, right? So with all our, uh, you know, political uh, chaos and, you know, all the issues that ravage India, I think uh, there is gradually a move towards a slightly more positive business environment, right? Whether some of the new policies, you know, when real estate, you had RERA, uh, you had the insolvency and IBC, insolvency and bankruptcy code, uh, you're having small moves towards privatization, so I think the economy is taking a few definitive steps, a lot of which will take time to show results and dividends, right? GST has been another positive move. So I think slowly a lot of the hurdles uh, are moving away. And I think India is well on its way to becoming one of the most powerful economies in the world. I think that is uh, is is one very critical, uh, uh, critical aspect, I think, which is good to remember. Uh, if I were to just look at some pointers, I think in terms of, you know, what at the stage of life a lot of you guys are in, uh, I think it's important, A, to make the most of your education. If you ask of any, ask anyone today, a lot of people realize that, you know, while our time in campuses and colleges was fun, a lot of the learnings happened outside the classroom. But another reality is a lot of what you learn will soon be redundant, right? Uh, I graduated out in the early 90s and, you know, almost a lot of the skills I then learned 
today are completely irrelevant, right? A lot of the concepts and a lot of things that the business world exposes one to. So there is an importance of uh, constancy in learning, right? How does one keep one's, uh, you know, desire and attempt to learn at an ongoing basis? So I think it's important to keep learning as a lifelong pursuit. It doesn't end uh, uh, with, you know, with graduating from college. Uh, the other challenge I think for everyone would really be about kind of learning to manage time, right? Over time, you'll realize that uh, there will be pressures on time. Today, social media guzzles you know, a couple of hours of our day. You know, if we are into, uh, you know, OTTs, that can couple a few more hours between work calls, between family, between friends. I think it's important to prioritize some of the things that matter to you, right? So therefore, developing a small little kind of personal vision statement, I think will help quite dramatically. Uh, and I think that's something would be a good practice to build, right? Uh, if I would look at a couple of other things I can advise, I think another one is really seeking opportunities to network and to kind of uh, present and speak in front of audiences. I think one of the skills that will always help you is the ability to communicate, right? Whether it's standing up and making a presentation to your superiors, to your peers, to your board, to your management. I think it's always an opportunity. And the more you do it, you'll find the more you get better at it. It's pretty often, you know, first few times are a little uncomfortable, but as you get used to it, it'll 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 work better. better. So I think that's, that's important. And I think another area that every one of you uh, should possibly you know, focus on is in terms of, uh, you know, building kind of networks. And by this, I don't mean it's really about business gatherings. It's really going out and meeting people in your area of interest, right? The more you know, the more your learnings, uh, the more uh, the more it kind of benefits, uh, benefits all around, right? So I would say those are some kind of thoughts uh, that I wanted to share. If I were to kind of share you know, some life lessons and things that I believe, uh, I think will really, really, uh, you know, help as you build them into your things. I think one is in terms of uh, spending resources wisely, right? Let's say if some of you are being clearly funded by your parents in your education or some of your education loans, I think you have to recognize that nothing in the world is free, right? Especially your time. So therefore, how do you make the most of what's been given to you, whether it's education, whether it's your first job, whether it's opportunities, I think spend your resources wisely, right? Whether it's monetarily or whether it's time. I think that's a big, big prioritization that you have to do, which links to that point of uh, learning to manage time. Uh, the second I would say is never be afraid to make decisions, right? There's a rule saying that, you know, being indecisive is worse. You make a few decisions. Sometimes you slip, sometimes you fail, sometimes it works. But on the whole, you know, follow your gut and make decisions and go with your gut, go with what, what you think, uh, you know, it, it's important to do. Third is uh, build relationships on a firm foundation, right, on respect and trust. Over time, what you stand for uh, will be how people perceive you, right? So learn to keep your word, learn to respect people's time, uh, you know, build on a strong base of respect and trust. I think that's fundamental to any relationship, be it personal, be it business, be it professional. I think that's uh, that's that's critical. Uh, I think another point I really want to emphasize is, you know, to be a doer, right? Traditionally, we all know that very often we get stuck in 
you know, debating things that just should we, should we not do. Like I said, all things equal, somebody who has the propensity to go out and do, who stands up and takes accountability for his actions, uh, will always will always come out tops, right? So I think that's important. And uh, if I were to kind of leave two more thoughts, I think one is to learn to accept criticism and feedback. Over time, a lot of us, you know, begin to believe that we are infallible, we are beyond ourselves. But I think it's very important to have either a mentor or a close friend or a soulmate, someone who could look at look you in the eye and tell you what's right and what's wrong, right? So therefore, it's the ability to kind of take feedback, maybe accept criticism. And, you know, in the formal world, it might happen through your appraisal process, but it's very important to get it, right? To get it from a friend, from a boss, a peer, a colleague, a teacher, a mentor. So I think the ability to take an action feedback is very critical. And the last thing I always say is that invest in yourself, right? Your health, uh, you know, set aside that little 45 minutes a day for your jog, for your run, for yoga, for meditation, whatever floats your boat. Uh, but I think investing in yourself is important. In the long run, you know, you live with yourself. And I think the moment, uh, you know, that starts pulling you back, it can affect a lot of stuff. So that's really some thoughts and some pointers I wanted to share. Uh, happy to hear, uh, you know, any of you, any questions, anything specific that you guys want me to dwell on. Uh, I'm more than happy to. Uh, to give you a sense, I work closely with a lot of startups right now. I work with uh, with uh, with a couple of, uh, you know, early stage funds. Uh, and my past has been with large corporates. So I've worked with a few, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies, HP, PepsiCo, Motorola, and the Tatas. Uh, but uh, we're really happy to, uh, uh, to, uh, to kind of have questions. I'll just leave one more little thought. I think the other point today, which is very real, is that the digital impressions we leave are real, right? So it's not just the impression you leave with people when they meet you, but I think today, increasingly companies and people uh, have to be very conscious about building their personal brand, right? And a large part of who you are and what you stand for and is also going to be a little bit of a personal brand. So invest that little time in, in making sure you're seen, you're visible in the right circles, uh, right? If it's a particular area of interest, if let's say you are a domain specialist in a particular subject, then I think you have to go beyond the mediocre. If you have to stand out, uh, you've got to invest and you also have got to build that reputation. And to, online provides you a lot of tools to do that, right? Whether it's your, uh, you know, your LinkedIn's of the world and, you know, various other social media, uh, Twitter's of the world, because who you are is a mix of both your, physical persona, your network, and your online persona. And I think, uh, you know, investing in personal brand building, of which they don't teach us anything, uh, you know, in school, uh, I think is something that people have to do. And simultaneously, to start off the business of planning your finances very early, right? If you look at anybody past their 50, I think one of the things they wish they'd done earlier is they wish that they kind of focused on their finances, you know, as soon as they began work as opposed to the fact that a lot of people in their first 10 years think that think nothing of you know of building a financial portfolio i think today there's a great opportunity uh, you don't have to you know be kind of wealthy to have a big uh, investment advisor you can go online to a whole lot of fintechs and set up your own thing yeah so just some random bits of thought some uh, some bits of advice uh, but happy to hear uh, you know anybody's questions any thoughts anything that you would like specially addressed so, wow, I think, Lloyd, it was superb, uh, you know, uh, I think you touched upon so many different aspects uh, in such a short time, I would say. 
But uh, to begin with, Lloyd, I mean, you you did mention that the economy has changed with digitization and so many things happening, right? Uh, people wouldn't have imagined certain services being available. But when it comes to leadership, right, uh, and as the topic goes, uh, certain nuances do not change, right? And and we, we could say that certain uh, things mentioned by Dale Carnegie many, many years back still stay relevant, right? So on the leadership aspect, if I were to ask you and, and through your journey over the years, right, what is it, one aspect that is the most important and it stays as is? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I would say, like I said, the critical elements of leadership, I think one is building a culture of trust, right? And I said this would work, uh, you know, obviously in the business context, but also in the personal context. So I think one of the hallmarks of a good leader is leading by example, right? If you expect your colleagues, your team to trust you, then I think you've got to stick to your word. And sticking to one's word is not just about commitments you make, but also how you behave, Right, so your kind of punctuality, uh, your respect for other people's, uh, you know, uh, preferences. I think that's critical. Just to give you an example, I think you know through the roles I've done, uh, you know, besides setting up, you know, a good appraisal system and having a clear expectation of what I want from my team or from my peers, I also would set aside typically some time with every individual, uh, you know, on a personal one-to-one. Right, an office is not just a place where we spend the bulk of our day. Uh, though, of course, these days it's more on Zoom and uh, Google Meets and backstage. Uh, it's also a place where we build strong bonds. So I think, therefore, one aspect of leadership is not just leading by example. Two, it's also having a strong element of empathy, right? The people we work with, uh, you know, our bosses, our colleagues, our peers, our subordinates, they are human, right? And if you don't recognize the empathy aspect, I think that's a big loss. So if I were to look at key leadership lessons, one is lead by example, you know, do exactly what you expect people to do for you. Uh, second is be proactive. I think you have to reach out to people. Not everyone uh, may be very forthcoming and talk to you about issues, right? But the moment you reach out to people and you show a bit of empathy, uh, you're able to draw, draw, draw out people. The third is, very, very critical, I think, is the whole business of accountability. If you ask me what separates, uh, you know, at any level of an organization, what separates a leader from someone who's not so, I think is the ability to take accountability, right? Are you willing to stand up and own up to a task? Are you willing to execute that task to your best of your ability? And are you willing to, therefore, share credit where it's due, right? Because very often we confuse accountability with kind of taking all the credit. I think accountability is the ability to finish a task. Uh, but being a good team player and sharing the credit is as much a part of, 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 of good leadership. Right? So if I would look at these things, I would say that's that's critical. The other point, which is you know part of good leadership, is also to be resilient, right? Through uh, your work, through your career, you'll obviously face moments of ups and downs, right? Life is not linear. Uh, you know, some things work, some don't. There are good times and bad times. And there are situations that we control and situations who are out of which are out of our control. But how soon one can pivot and change uh, will make a big difference. Just to illustrate an example, you know, one of the companies I worked with was, uh, you know, in this Airbnb space, 
right? And they were they had a fairly big network of rooms for uh, you know letting out. And then suddenly, you know, one fine morning in March 2020, there was a lockdown, right? And their business crashed to zero. Now they did a very quick pivot. So they had a few calls. The leadership team got together and suddenly realized that a lot of healthcare facilities, doctors, nurses, etc., uh, they need to they needed to kind of continue to keep running, whereas they were not able to commute to their place of work and home as one would expect. And therefore, these guys quickly, you know, got their premises sanitized, uh, tied up with some healthcare places, and did a did a mapping with the closest you know hospital or clinic. And therefore, a lot of the doctors and you know other healthcare professionals could actually stay there. So most of these places were, let's say, within walking distance or within half a kilometer of a, of a, of a hospital or such like. Now, this was a quick pivot because their basic business was for traveling executives for that kind of stay. And quickly, they were able to seize and capitalize on the opportunity. Right. So being resilient, being able to you know, face disruption as seamlessly as possible, I think is a good part. Like I said, there are no permanent losers. Right. You might lose around. You always stand up to fight the next. So I think the ability to turn around is the hallmark of, of good leadership. The ability to really turn things to your advantage. Uh, yeah. So, so Lloyd, I think you made an interesting point. And I think we, we already have a few questions coming in, in the chat box, which I'll take it uh, next. But you may you, you spoke about resilience. You spoke about empathy, right? right? And turning the situations around. Right. But I think, and since you're dealing with so many startups as well, Lloyd. Right. So uh, how do you look at vulnerability? Right, because there are so many new people, new young guys getting into a startup, becoming founders, and they might not have those real life experience, right? And and leadership, when it comes to it, they may not have all the answers all the time. So if they are vulnerable, how should people handle vulnerability, in a sense? I think there is no escaping vulnerability. We all feel a little vulnerable at times, uh, but I think the solutions to that are two. I think one is the ability to be proactive, right? I think one has to make a sense of what the future is going to be like. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. And therefore build, uh, you know, relative skills around that. So I think that's the one solution, uh, you know, uh, in a sense. The second is, like I said, to accept the reality that there are things within your direct control and there are things that you can't control. Right. I think the moment you start getting frustrated and, you know, stuck in the zone saying, hey, I can't help with this. I think that's going to pull you down. I would say that, you know, three, I would look at it three parts that good leaders, they operate in what I call the growth zone. Right. The first zone that we all are kind of born into as humans is the fear zone. Right. And fear zone is really when things start bothering us, irritating us. Right. It's like about people who complain frequently, uh, people who get angry very easily, people who feel overwhelmed, oh, there's too much of work, my job sucks, my boss is terrible, my pay is not good enough, uh, you know, I live too far from work, right? So there's a bit of anger and fear in everyone. And I think we all have to accept that some things, like I said, you can improve, some things you can't. I think the trick is to move from the fear zone into what I would call the learning zone, right? And that is when you start to give up what you can't control. But you start identifying with areas that you can work around you know, where you become aware of the situation and think how to act right where you evaluate information uh, before spreading things right so you hear things a lot of rumors today whatsapp is an easy way to kind of you know get taken in but here you put a filter you say hey is this relevant am i good to forward this 
right? And I think the recognition that everyone around is going through the same journey. So the learning zone. I think the true aspect of, of conquering vulnerability is when you get into the growth zone, right? And this is really about looking not just yourself, but also saying how can you help others? I have this big belief in karma that you go around helping others, uh, you know, you'll have help coming your way, right? And therefore, look for a way to help others. Look at the way to adapt to new changes, right? Because being procrastinating, holding back is always going to be negative, right? But kind of keeping a happy, positive predisposition, uh, being in a positive emotional state always helps. I, like I said, being empathetic with yourself and others is important. And mostly, I think it's living in the present and focusing on the future, right? We know a lot of our times are just uselessly consumed. Sometimes, you know, binge watching, uh, you know, just lying brain dead, watching television for hours together. I think, yes, there's a part which of us which needs to relax. I think one needs to do that. But there are also parts when you have to be, uh, you know, kind of proactive. And I think keeping that balance right is good, right? It's easy to slip in either one direction. I'm not advocating everyone being a workaholic. You don't need to spend 10, 12 hours constantly working. You need your breaks. But I think it's important to prioritize. And therefore, I think the more you operate in what I would call a growth zone, as opposed to that fear zone, uh, the more you, you will you, you'll build yourself to a better, better, better future. Interesting, Lloyd. I think, uh, so oh, you mentioned about being workaholic as well, sure. right? Uh, and so on. There is a question similar to that. So Rahul, uh, one of our listeners, has asked, uh, so what is your take on work-life balance? Is there a mantra that you follow? I would say work-life balance is an individual choice. I'm all for work-life balance, but different people have a different set of priorities. Uh, it's obviously difficult. For example, if you enjoy what you do, as they say, uh, then you know you enjoy your work as much as you enjoy you know, not working. And that's that's pretty okay, right? So I know people who literally put in 16-hour days and are still able to give a reasonable amount of time to their personal pursuits and family, right? Because of the intensity they bring. But I would say in general, uh, for most people, I think it's important to see what matters most to you, right? We all, in a sense, are running on three, uh, you know, on a tripod, right? One, what's good for yourself, right? Your health, your career, that's one. Second is what's good for the people the closest to you, right? Your family, your immediate family, and that's critical. And third is really your professional side, right? Your business, if you're an entrepreneur, or your, you know, your job, if you're an executive. And I think, therefore, to strive for a perfect balance between the three is important. Important to work, enjoy yourself, you know, get due reward, you know, work towards promotions, work towards growth. Important to spend time with your family, give them what they deserve, your attention, your time, uh, you know, free moments, uh, you know, whether it's with kids, investing in those children, or whether it's, it's your, you know, partner. I think that's, uh, that's important. And also to carve out enough time for yourself. We all need time to, for our health, for, uh, you know, for, for nourishing our thinking in terms of reading, uh, for, uh, you know, maybe meditation or spending quietly. So I think therefore, if you kind of look at a little triangle, I would say, this is optimal. It works for different people differently, right? But staying conscious of this and recognizing that you're not going overboard. The moment you get too stressed, I think it's an indication that A, you're working too much or you're ignoring one leg of the stool, right? And I think constantly it's good to reappraise. There will, of course, be moments when you'll veer towards one end of the spectrum, right? You're on a new job, 
or let's say you're working with a startup where you guys are about to hit an IPO or whatever. So there'll be those crazy days, right? We'll all do those 16, 18 hour days and, you know, get by with three or four hours of sleep. But that should not be part of a regular thing. So adjust as soon as possible. If you don't get your six to seven hours a day of sleep on a regular basis, uh, you're harming yourself in the long run. If you're not able to make enough time for your partner, for, you know, your family, uh, you're going to feel unfulfilled in the long run, right? So I think it's important to keep that balance. And uh, it's up to each individual. I mean, all of us will kind of get a sense over it over time. Of course, when we look back, we'll find that sometimes we overdid one versus the other. But that's that's life. But I think staying cognizant of these three kind of ends of the tripod, so to speak, self, family, and uh, you know, profession, I think is a, is a critical element to the whole uh, work-life balance question. So hope I'll be able to answer some of your stuff, Rahul. Well, very well explained, Lloyd. I mean, uh, you know, a tripod will always stay in my mind as well. So yeah, same here. Good, good one to say. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, so to all the listeners, guys, you can start raising your hands. I'll get uh, one by one to the speaker panel as well. And I'll take a few more questions uh, from the chat box in the meantime. So uh, following on that, uh, uh, Lloyd, Priyasi is asking that one of the biggest obstacles for people to start business ventures is all about funding. And how do you raise funding? Uh, yeah, I think that's 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 a great question, Priyasi. I think... Uh, Yes, the biggest hurdle to, you know, getting your business off the ground is funding. Uh, but on the positive side, you're at the best time possible, at least in India's history, uh, to get funding. I would say, how does one get about? I think the first part is really, you know, understanding what is it that you want to do, right? So the moment you have an idea, you have a proposition, uh, let's say you get together with a founder, co-founder, or you do it solo, I think it's important to kind of articulate that proposition, you know, and the first part is to understand whether there's a product market fit, right? What is it in your product? Uh, what is the problem that you're solving? Or what is the role that your product or your solution is playing in the world? I think that's question one. Is it based on real consumer insight? Second is what is what are people willing to pay for it, right? And, you know, to use jargon, this is what is called product market fit, right? So once you answer these two questions, is that what is your proposition? What is the product market fit? I think that's the first part. The second is to you know, look at how worthy this proposition is. What will what will a six-month or a one-year business plan look like? What are the things you need to do? You know, do you need a team? Do you need to outsource the technology? Do you need to get a co-founder? Uh, I think it's important to understand what will it take in terms of resources, right? How do you keep yourself going in that period, right? If you're committing to the startup, then you need some funding to keep yourself going, right? So I think putting all those elements of cost in terms of plans, what will a one-year, two-year, three-year scenario look like is important. And these are things that you have to sit and articulate as deeply as possible because sooner than later, when you go down for funding, people are going to ask you these questions. The third, I think, is really about once you get some of these details in place, I think is first element is always starting with family and friends. You're going to go with people who you worked with, your colleagues, your friends, or you know, close family, who are willing to trust you with, let's say, some degree of very basic funding, right? Assuming... Uh, some of it you bootstrap yourself should you have your savings. I think once you get going and you have, let's say, a proof of concept, uh, you're ready, then you're ready to kind of look at slightly more professional funding opportunities, right? So one is there are a lot of angel investing networks. There are things like Mumbai Angels, India Angels, uh, half a dozen. You look up Google and you'll find them. 
where there are a lot of people who are willing to take small bets. And a lot of these angel investing networks are where individuals come together and, you know, each of them puts in, say, anything between two to five lakhs. And together they might invest whatever, one crore, two crores in a company. Uh, I think that angel investment network is maturing now. The next level is what is called micro VCs. There are people who create these small funds of four or five crores uh, with, say, five, six or 10 or 15 people. And they also fund. So they all, in a sense, taking pot shots at, at a startup. Right? And I say pot shot is a startup because there's a kind of little uh, secret in the angel network is that if you invest in about 10 startups, uh, you may just about break even. Right? One or two may go on to do great things. Uh, five or six may just wither away and die. And hopefully two others will get merged, acquired, or whatever else. On the whole, you might come out with some wins. But of course, if you're lucky, you'll have a, what is called a multi-bagger where you have lots of stuff. So I would say strictly in terms of funding, one is to get your product proposition in place, get your core team, look at the costing, uh, build a very basic pitch deck, uh, you know, get going with some individual funders, uh, you know, off the ground for the first six months, you need to prove some proposition. Then you go into some of the angel networks and, you know, typically look at some external funding, uh, depending on your appetite and how big you want to grow the business. And I think once you're about a year, year and a half in, then you can look at getting across to micro VCs and, you know, moving up the ladder, as they call it, series A, B, C. And that might involve, you know, venture capital companies, larger funds and such like, uh, you know, until, you know, hopefully you get to an IPO or, uh, you know, some big daddy buys you off. So that's really the process. But I think the idea is knowing exactly what you want to do and knowing how you can get there. I think are two critical elements and then reaching out to, uh, to networks. Interesting Lloyd. I think you, you summed it up, uh, you know, in a very, very simple way, if I were to say, uh, following up, I think Ishida has asked a question that is social media presence pivotal in commercializing and building a presence amongst people these days. A great question, Ishita. I think social media is very critical. I'm not sure if I could say pivotal, but I think today with the extent of time people spend on, on digital and a large part of that is on social media. And by this, I'm looking at everything from, you know, WhatsApp to obviously the Instas and Twitter and, you know, and Tinder or whatever else there is. I think there's a lot of traction in social media. However, the caution I have is that, you know, social media can do only so much and not more. And the reason I say so is that a lot of startups tend to get very excited about, uh, you know, getting great likes and retweets and, you know, my YouTube video got 200,000 followers and such like. I think social media is good to build traction, but it's not the only way. Eventually, your brand story has to get around uh, in slightly more solid ways, right? So whether it means a kind of product experience or giving consumers a good experience, those who try your brand, so I think that's important. It's also good to have testimonials. But having said which, yes, social media is uh, very important. Uh, today, brands don't no longer have a one-way street, right? So in times that went by, you know, brand managers and businesses were able to put out a point of view that is uncontested. Today, anything you say uh, can get debated, can get uh, cancelled, uh, can get into controversy, right? You're seeing all around you, let's say, what's happening in the last few years. Right? Anything that a brand says can go, can be misunderstood. Right? Very often, you know, by natural reasons, sometimes by motivated reasons. So one has to be very careful. Uh, you don't control the narrative 100% these days. 
uh, you know, consumers have as much of uh, a say in the matter. And very often it's not just consumers, but it's it's kind of motivated parties like trolls uh, who, for some reason or the other, may want to, you know, kind of use a loose word, take panga. Right. And it gives a lot of people satisfaction saying, oh, I led a revolt. So I think making social media activism is now a full time job. Uh, it doesn't take much effort. In past days gone by, you know, you have to physically trudge to a jantar mantar or whatever. I mean, today you can you can sit back on Twitter and and create a storm. So I think it's a good way to build a business. It can give you a lot of traction. Uh, this whole community of influencers today is quite powerful. Uh, today, people trust influencers much more than they trust large celebrities, right? So I'm in the market for an education course, and if somebody who I know has told me that, look, this is a great university experience of being good, I'll trust him much more than a superstar on TV saying the same, right? Because most people know that the superstar is being paid big bucks to say so. But and there's a lot more credibility around influencers. So yes, social media is a great tool, used effectively both for a business and, like I said, for building one personal brand. I think it's extremely helpful. Interesting. Thanks for that, Lloyd. Further, I think uh, Lloyd Tanvir has asked a question that what strategies can be used to first market your business? I mean, if it's a startup, right, uh, there will be limited amount of funding available. So how to do the initial marketing bit and acquire the, maybe a first set of customers? Uh, interesting question, Tanvir. It'll depend on what category that you are focusing on. What I would say is that, uh, you know, irrespective of category, I think it's one very, very important to carefully segment your market, right? Specifically, if you're a startup, uh, it's very, it's not very often that you'll be able to, uh, 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 you know, kind of address a very wide market. So let's say if you're a startup, you want to segment your core consumer. You want to determine that my core user is going to be, let's say, an age bracket of 21 to 35, uh, you know, this demographic, this geography. I think once you segment your market, uh, the next thing is how do you build your content, right? What is it that you want to talk about? Whether you want to talk about what your product can do, what problem your product can solve, uh, what is your core proposition? I think that comes next. So once you have a tight segment, once you have a clear content strategy, then you go about communicating this uh, to the consumer. The very critical part is getting the first set of consumers in or the first set of users in because they can be great reinforcements in terms of uh, testimonials, right? Using, uh, having an existing customer say something nice about your product, about the experience, is the best way to get more people in. It's in a sense like the old, uh, you know, network marketing strategy, member get member. So I think if I were to look at a kind of, uh, you know, strategy for an early stage business, it is being very, very selective about targeting who you are because that will make sure that your message is clear to that person. But more importantly, that is also a more pragmatic and a more optimal and a more economic way of reaching to the consumer. Right. Secondly, is to spend as much time as possible of crafting good content. Right. What is that you're going to say about your product or who's going to say it is as important. Right. And the third part is the early users. Who are the early users? To what extent can they become, uh, you know, you can say endorsers or they can become live testimonials for your brand. I think that will uh, play a significant role. So that's the kind of traction you want. And of course, as you scale up, 
uh, then you will need to possibly get into higher areas. One important part of the whole thing, of course, increasing right now is what is called SEO, right? So search is going to be critical. And obviously the, you know, the elephant in the room or the company that you can't do without in search is Google. So over time, you will spend money on things like SEO in terms of, you know, optimizing. So when people search for, uh, you know, whatever that your product is solving, they see you up there on, you know, up, up in the rankings. So that's, that's critical. So I think that is the more fine tuning. But until you get your segmentation right, until you get your content strategy right, and, uh, you know, then you kind of go out the way to boo customers, I think that will be critical. Secondly, as a startup, I think it's also important to use your networks, right? So the first few set of consumers would be always good to use your personal networks, your contacts, people you know, because that's the only way uh, you, you'll get some kind of long-term traction. So I think that is that is the the other part that you need to stay cognizant about. Interesting. Thanks, Lord. In fact, you could you also answered uh, Nandita's question as well uh, when it came to content marketing and you know, on, uh, along with the business. I think that was an interesting one. So Akshay has an interesting question. He asked today's world, what are the major attributes to become a leader? Uh, Akshay, I would say if I were to list down like a one, two, three, I think it's one, it's very, very important to be high EQ or what I would call empathy. Right? I think good leadership is really about understanding and respecting people. Right, Whatever you seek to achieve, whether it's a business objective, whether it's a personal goal, I think it's your ability to empathize and put yourself in the other person's shoes and see how he thinks and responds and then work your way into that that helps. So I would say empathy uh, is one very critical aspect of that. The second thing I always believe a good mark of a team leader is uh, uh, of a leader is being a team player, right? Uh, no matter how well and how many people that you lead who are direct reports or people under your organization, I think real leaders know how to be good team players, right? And therefore, in a world that's less hierarchical, right? You know, unless you work for, let's say, the military or the government, I think today there is a lot of, uh, we work in a relative system of equality, right? If you guys are in the work stream, you'll know that Today, most CEOs are very approachable. You, you know, as much as there's a hierarchy, I think uh, there is a lot of the ability to actually work across teams. And when I'm talking of team players, it's not just peers. It's also with other business partners, with associates. So I think being a team player, I think, is a critical aspect. Right? So empathy and being a team player. Hello? The third, I think, is being decisive. Right? And I believe that one of the important characteristics of a leader is the ability to take a decision and go with it. Like I said, sometimes decisions may go out of control, things may go wrong, at which time one has to stand up and be accountable. Right? So decision making and accountability uh, would be the next aspect. Never be afraid to take a decision and always own up accountability. Right? It's great to take credit, but it's equally important to share the blame or to take the blame. Right? And one of the lessons I've always practiced and I do believe is that when you're leading a team, it's always good for the leader to protect his team, right? Protection of the team is really about standing up and taking the flack from a team member. Uh, so you, especially if it's a junior person, you want to. At the same time, making sure that you kind of protect the interests of your team, whether it's stretching them too hard in terms of working, don't work them to the point when they break, 
and also to make sure that they get their share of you know let's say increments promotions or whatever so i think in a sense as a leader you will also have to be a little bit of a a better human being because you're not just uh, you know leading them for their business objectives you're also leading them as somebody who they want to look up to and i think that part is uh, is 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 fairly critical oh that that's pretty interesting lord i think uh, very detailed yeah omul you had a question yeah uh, thank you rishab um, thanks lord for sharing all the wisdom um, one quick question you know generally from the leaders um, we hear all the good things um, like that has worked out do you have any example where things have not worked out or or you've tried and um, things failed but something you learned from your that experience great question amol uh, i think uh, you know very often it's not worked out right so the the truth is uh, uh, you know as much as people may remember some of the good things and you know your kind of cv shows that you know, you've done well i think the various moments in life when things haven't worked out so let us share a couple of examples i think when you work for you know large mncs uh, you realize that there are some areas uh, that are totally within your control and some not right so you know when i worked with a large mobile phone maker in the early 2000s i used to lead sales and we were at one point a 140 member sales team across india and uh, business was good uh, growth was huge i remember in the previous two years every year we were growing an average of 30 35% which was huge and india was a significant market in this us based company we were about 6% of global turnover so this was very good and we kept getting applauded and pretty significant bonuses so most people would end the year at a 20% uh, bonus on their annual salary now in that context out of the 140 members you know we you know we would kind of give pretty healthy increments and you know the whole objective was about 40% would get huge increments the next 40% would be kind of reasonably okay and the bottom 20 would either be flat or that's an indication that they don't continue uh so yeah this was uh, one exercise we did and two months later soon after we did this whole promotion exercise you know globally the company missed a step and had to downsize right so here came an order from the us that one has to cut the workforce or your sales team down from 140 uh you know by 50% right so here is two months after you know rating people uh you know excellent or about target or doing very well uh one had to rationalize and bring down the sales team by 70 people right so in the span of one week uh you know you're sitting in a conference room and meeting people one on one with some support from hr and uh the rest of the team and telling them that hey it's not about you but uh you know the company wants us to cut back right and uh, you know I think Lloyd, we lost you in between. Yeah, I'm breaking up. Yeah, I can't hear him. Uh, Lloyd, can you try to hit the reset button on the bottom? If you can hear us. we can we still can't hear him actually uh maybe just uh, if you can still hear us like uh, leave the room and try to come back sometime that fixes the issue 
Floyd, can you hear us? So let me try and reach him once. Uh, can you hear me, please? Yeah, yeah. We can hear you can. Okay, sorry, I thought I lost the line for a second. I got an incoming call. Yeah, so I would say, you know, moments like this tend to be, you know, uh, you know, terrible, and it was clearly uh, a failure. But I think there are a lot of these moments, and I think one has to just learn to accept the reality and try and move on. But importantly, I think is to keep the empathy and keep the human side going. I think that's that's critical. So I've faced. Uh, many many failures uh, you know not ashamed to admit and I think very often as they say with failure comes better learning I mean you're better prepared the next time you know what went wrong and uh, specifically the startup ecosystem and I look forward to seeing a lot of you guys do your own thing I think uh, today investors have learned to recognize that people who tried and failed and tried and failed again and tried again uh, have better chance of success right as they say the more failures you have uh, the more unlikely you're going to fail in the future, right? Because you eliminated certain reasons for failure. So I think the important thing is picking yourself up, learning the lessons that failure teaches you, and then moving forward. I think that's that's really what I would say. So Lloyd, I have a question on that. Is uh, I've seen that uh, failure being appreciated in the startup world, but in the professional career, like especially in the corporate career, like I haven't seen yet. I don't know the things have changed or not. But uh, when I was in the corporate world, like the failures were not celebrated as much, as, much as in the startup world, it is. Uh, any any thoughts on that? Are you you're back on a chunk? I think the startup ecosystem. There's a far greater acceptance of uh, of. Uh, there's no. You don't stand tainted in people's in people's eyes uh, with failure. Uh, world that still remains right people's reputation has to be uh, built on you know some of the failures that they've had uh, in the past uh, so you're absolutely i think this gradual situation uh, why now i'm coming i'm able to point i think the moment you recognize that this was what I did in saying that it was situation beyond my control sometimes is not the best strategy. I think acceptance of that this was a failed mission. Here's what I did wrong. Here's what I don't think I will do again in the same way. I think is better. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the corporate world is far less forgiving on failures than the startup world. And I think that is that is an area and a problem area and needs rectification. And I think one part is the pressure on the corporate world to deliver, right? So the moment you're chasing yeah. quarterly targets quarter and quarter, you know, one bad quarter and, you know, your neck is on the line, so to speak, and two bad quarters and your history. And this is like literally at the CEO level. 
I think with this level of impatience, that is bound to happen. But uh, like I said, the startup world and and venture capital is far more forgiving. Yeah, but I've seen the the newer newer companies like Tesla or uh, Amazon, even Amazon, which is not a new company anymore. But uh, I Did think that they have. Did that make sense, Shashank? Yes, definitely, definitely. Can you hear me? Uh, Shushank, I can hear you. Um, but probably Lloyd. Sorry, was I able to answer your question, Shushank? Yeah, yeah, you were. Can 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 you hear me, right? I can hear you now. Okay, cool. So yeah, I, I was about to say that uh, uh, some of the newer companies. I mean, uh, one of the example would be like Amazon or uh, Tesla or other companies. They have actually uh, kind of, I think, like uh, they have missed on their quarterly targets so many times before. and they because they were so much focused on the long term vision and that's what like uh, quite a few companies are changing now so i'm pretty hopeful that uh, that short term goals would be revised based on that and uh, i firmly believe that uh, the company should have a room for failure because if you're trying if you don't i mean if you're trying something uh, new the chance of failure would always be there and the employee should not be penalized for trying something uh, new in my opinion absolutely just to just to qualify that i think that's <clears throat> that's well said and that's also because let's say the companies you mentioned and amazon or tesla they've kind of had founder iconic leaders who were able to tell the larger story to wall street right saying that i'm out to build something really big and it will take forever to to make a business this big right so i'm so jeff bezos in his early years was very clear that amazon is not in the business of making profit you'll have to stay with this company for the long haul right so i think they finally did their first kind of profit in their 14th year or so to so to speak yeah, i yeah. think even tesla so i think the ability to sell a big vision and to have a charismatic leader is critical right steve jobs was one such and you know a lot of the old there was a guy called bob goizita and don kendall uh, coke and pepsi they always told wall street the larger story saying don't judge us by a quarter performance look at us in terms of a 3 year 5 year vision right this company has consistently delivered value however for a lot of companies run by professional managers don't get the same leeway right so you have two bad quarter results two quarters of declining sales and wall street's being for your blood right saying hey <laughs> uh, you know, so that's that's a reality but i think visionary leaders are able to stay afloat but sadly increasingly the pressures from investors in the market is for short term true well interesting lord i think it's been a wonderful uh, having conversation but i think before you leave i'll need to have uh, i'd like to ask you a couple of questions lord i think ankit in a, one of our listeners has asked an interesting question and he's asking what do you do if you realize that you're not being led by a good leader how does one hold on to their own lord you're on mute if at all you're talking Lloyd, you are on mute. Ah, uh, yes. Sorry, I'm pretty much done with that. So, any other questions? Anything else? Or anybody has anything specific to ask? Please feel free. Okay. So, uh, I don't know. Reach out one on one. So, Ankit, I don't know if you, uh, Lloyd, I don't know if you heard the question that Ankit had uh, written in the chat box. He's asking, yeah. "What do you do if you realize that you're not being led by a good leader? How does one sorry, hold on to their own?" Sorry, something. I couldn't hear. Yeah, Arushab, uh, I think like uh, Lloyd is not able to hear you. Uh, there's some issue there. Uh, uh, so Arushab was asking a question from uh, Ankit. 
uh, in the chat box, he has asked, like, what do you do if you realize that you are not being led by a good leader? How does one hold their own? Ankit, that's a, that's a good question. And that's a real situation that one would face typically. Uh, I think there are two ways around to it. I think one is, you know, understand what's not working with your good leader, right? So if you know there's some things that are not right, right, whether it's, you know, his approach or favoritism or whatever it, the issue is, I think uh, the good point is, A, to recognize that. Uh, to discreetly, discreetly, and I repeat that, uh, you know, seek out a peer or someone in the HR department or maybe the next next level uh, to bring out that issue. But you have to be very, very sure and you've got to have very good instances on that count. But before that step, I would say the first critical step is to what is called have it out with your boss, with your manager, right? If there are some issues that you think are a blind spot, then they're worth addressing. For example, you know, I know of people who say that you know, my boss doesn't communicate with me often enough or he doesn't define a task well enough and state expectations of what he expects from it. I think very often it's about seeking out private time one-on-one -on -one with the boss, with the manager and saying, hey, these are one or two of my expectations. Uh, I wish you can address them, right? And obviously you have to start with saying that, look, I enjoy working with you or whatever it is. Some things may be a little bit to soften the impact, but saying, hey, this will make our work relationship much more. I think the other point, and you know, on the same line, uh, if I were to say, is also it's very critical for a boss subordinate to have a good relationship. Without that, great work is not possible. And I think the easiest way, the best way is for a, for a team member to tell his manager or his boss that I'm invested in your success, right? So if here are your big five goals, then which of them can I help you with, Chief? Because you recognize that if you're working in a hierarchical, any organization, uh, your boss has some definitions of what success for him. And if he sees you as an active contributor to his success, uh, you're going to come up tops. So I think one is to recognize what are the reasons that are holding him back, right? Why is he, to your mind, a bad manager? Is it some of it is a personality trait? Is it an organizational culture issue? Or is it just a bad individual, right? And once you recognize that, maybe you can work around. But sometimes there'll be inevitable situations when you have, uh, let's say, a manager which just doesn't work out. Right. I think one is to have the patience to hang in there. Uh, the other is uh, look at other opportunities outside, maybe within the company, maybe a, a different section, different department, different manager, or eventually maybe look outside. And uh, that situation is real. Yeah, that happens so much, uh, so so many times, actually. I think like uh, I, I agree with Lloyd on that. Like, uh, I think talk to your manager, try to find out the solution or look at internal mobility and the last should be like uh, look outside actually there's enough opportunity out there yeah yeah well lloyd i think uh, the one hour has passed so fast i would say and before you leave uh you know one last advice that you would want to speak uh to tell all our listeners all our students who are joining us live uh yeah been wonderful chatting with everyone if i were to leave uh one thought I think I would say stay passionate with what you do, right? You're here not just to earn a salary, uh, but you're here to make a small difference in the world. So I think stay passionate with what you do, uh, you know, and two, make sure you enjoy it, right? I think, uh, you know, passion is your commitment. Enjoyment is the fact that you also want to have fun doing it, right? So you can be passionate about something, but not necessarily enjoy it. That's not a good solution. 
I think you got to strike that balance, right? I think, but staying passionate, staying committed, making a difference to the world, I think is the best thing you can do for the world and for yourself. And uh, you'll certainly have fun through that process. And uh, yeah, I wish all of you very well. And, uh, you know, go out there, have fun, enjoy yourself and do well. Well, uh, thank you very much, Lloyd, for taking out time today and speaking to all our young listeners. It was lovely having you here back on Backstage, Lloyd. Thank you. Thank you, Lloyd. And we hope uh, to see you back soon. Thanks Thank so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a great evening. Catch you guys soon. Bye-bye. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Lloyd. Thank you.